I had the same intuition that these ponds seem ancient. And I said, why can't we apply membrane technology and lithium production? So it's like a huge win-win because it's a lot less capex and they can recover this 90% efficiency rate and avoid all the losses. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we are talking about expanding the availability of lithium and how a new technology could make our energy future more sustainable. To hear the experts hear it, we'll be carried down the road to the future with lithium-ion batteries. Not only will the third element on the periodic table feature prominently in every car on the planet, lithium will also provide grid-scale stationary storage. Where's all this lithium going to come from? And aren't these batteries finite resources? We're working at breakneck speed to jettison our need for oil, but doesn't that mean we're trading one non-renewable mineral for another? My guest doesn't have the answer for providing us a never-ending supply of the stuff, but it's certainly coming close. As he explains, much of the lithium mined today comes out of salty brine that's pumped up to the surface. Lithium chloride is just one of the salts that has to be separated out and processed. What's ironic is that the mineral that's destined to take us into the future is mined using a process that would be familiar to folks who lived in the Bronze Age. These salts are conventionally precipitated out in vast evaporation ponds in the desert. Surely there has to be a better way, am I right? Anyone who's ever treated dissolved solids knows that you get salt out using filters through a process called reverse osmosis. My guess has applied that principle and married it with a technology that selectively pulls out the lithium salt from the brine. These nanoparticles are called metal organic frameworks, the same technology my guest in episode 74 is using to pull CO2 out of gas. Whenever I hear about underground brines, the light bulb goes off. These prehistoric seas aren't limited to Bolivia, they're everywhere. Brine formations are considered key reservoirs for permanent CO2 storage around the world. I was around the stuff my entire career in the fracking industry where this brine, which we called produced water, came up in volumes with every barrel of oil and gas. This produced water in particular is a gumbo of just about every element on the earth, and during my time working in the sector, I was asked to take just about everything out of it. As a waste product, produced water has two destinies, recycled for more fracking or sent down to a permanent saltwater disposal well. A few startups came up to us about mining rare earth metals out of produced water, like modern-day 49ers. It's my guess hope he can do the same for the oil and gas industry for lithium. If you take a technology like this that can make lithium essentially available anywhere and combine it with a legitimate recycling program, it's my guess lithium will be around for the long haul. We're here with Teague Egan, founder and CEO of EnergyX. And Teague, I spent several years in water treatment for oil and gas, and your system from the website looks a lot like a reverse osmosis unit for filtering dissolved solids out of water. Are we in the same family here with your technology? Yeah, it is in the same family. Now, that's actually how I got the idea is looking at technologies around reverse osmosis and water desalination. And I said, if we have membranes that are capable 
principle of separating all salts from seawater or salty solutions, then why can't we use membranes to target specific salts in that solution, such as lithium? Now, let me just clarify that our membranes are very different than reverse osmosis membranes, but at the end of the day, they are separation membranes. Kind of give us a little bit of a rudimentary understanding of how lithium is derived. What do people, when they mine for it, start with and how is it ultimately separated and turned into batteries? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a question that I didn't know the answer to until I stumbled upon this in the high deserts of Bolivia, which are part of an area called the Lithium Triangle that has a majority of the world's lithium reserves. There's two ways that lithium is produced. The first way is what somebody would typically think of as like a big open pit, hard rock mining scenario that you mine copper for and you have these huge trucks and you are digging out into a big hole. That's one way. And there are big mines like that in Australia. The second way though, which is the way that we are focused on is lithium comes in the form of a salt in really salty waters, which are known as brines. And the salt contents of that, we use the term TDS, which stands for total dissolved solids. These brines in South America and the lithium triangle have between 25 and 35% TDS. And that TDS is made up of a variety of salts, not just what people normally think of as table salt, which is sodium chloride, but it's sodium, it's chloride, it's magnesium, it's potassium, it's lithium, it's sulfate, it's calcium. Those are all salts. And the idea is how do you separate out just lithium or purify all of those things in different streams so that you can actually use that material for what you want it to. The lithium is a positively charged ion and the chloride is a negatively charged. So you need to counterbalance there. So ultimately you purify just the lithium chloride out of this really salty water, the salt solution. And then that is crystallized into a final lithium product, either lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide. And that lithium is inserted into the cathode part of the battery. And that's how lithium ends up in our lithium ion batteries. And I have a little bit of background in this, this water that's coming up, this brine. Mm -hmm. Is this the same as the water that we deal with when we're fracking what we call in the oil and gas industry produced water? We're not talking about water that's in the water table. We're talking about stuff that's below the rock and like a mile down. Is it that water? It's very similar. It's not the exact same. In these salty brines, there's no oil. They're much closer to the surface. They're still subsurface, but they're in like ancient dried up lakes down in this region in the lithium triangle. And you pump up this brine and it's extremely salty, as I mentioned, and you put it into these huge ponds. Produced water, however, does have similar characteristics. In a fracking process, these big oil and gas companies can bring up up to 20 barrels of produced water for every single barrel of oil and gas that comes up. And the chemical composition of that is different than more salty brine, but it actually does have decent lithium concentrations. It might have some larger suspended solids. There's some oil in there that you need to get out. There's some other sediment and things, but it does have salts in produced water. And that's actually one of the areas that we're focusing on is, okay, this is pretty similar to these more purified salt brines. And these produced waters do have some lithium contents in them. So we're looking at, there needs to be pre-filtration, but then we are looking at 
at separating the lithium out of produced water as well. That's fascinating. And I'm glad that the conversation's kind of veered into oil and gas. I always love making that handshake <laughs> on this program. Yeah. Since episodes are either electric utility or they're oil and gas. And so I love crossing the aisle like that. Let's talk about what the existing technology is for separating lithium. And based on your website, I was shocked to see that the conventional method is using acres of ponds. Yeah. You're taking the lithium out of this water. Is that just basically how they do it? It almost looks prehistoric, you know, medieval. That's what I thought when I first saw it too. <laughs> no, that's literally how they do it. You need to think about why that's the way that they do it, right? What I came up with is we haven't really needed that much lithium until now. In these ponds, lithium was actually a byproduct of potash. Potash being an agricultural fertilizer. And these ponds produce tens of thousands of tons of potash. And potash in the pond sequence is a predecessor to the lithium. The way that the ponds work right now is, first of all, these ponds are massive. The systems down in South America in the Lithium Triangle, some are 15 square miles, which is bigger than the city of Manhattan from downtown to north of Central Park. But they're in huge deserts. So I guess that works out. They just evaporate? Uh, yeah. So they literally use the sun to evaporate the water because water makes up 70% of this solution, right? And then the other 30% is the dissolved salts. There's a sequence of these ponds. It's not just like one pond that the brine runs through, but they pump all of the brine out in the ground and then put it into the first pond. And in the first pond, it stays in that pond for a few months and the sun evaporates about 50% of the water and sodium chloride precipitates at this point. And then they move all of the remaining solution to the second pond and they scoop out the sodium chloride and they refill that pond with feed. Now, sitting in the second pond, about 70% of the remaining water is evaporated and potassium chloride is precipitated out. That takes another several months and then they move all of the remaining solution to the third pond and they scoop all the potassium potassium chloride out. In the third pond, the same thing happens with magnesium chloride. And then in the fourth pond, in between the third and fourth pond, the lithium starts to co-precipitate out with the magnesium, but they don't want the lithium to co-precipitate out yet because the lithium needs to be pure and they want to concentrate the lithium. So the lithium starts in the very first pond at 0.1% of the total solution. And they need to get it up to a concentration of 6%. So that's why it's important that a lot of the water is taken taken out and a lot of the other salts are taken out. Once they get it up to 6%, they're able to transport it to final processing where they crystallize the lithium into those chemicals that I mentioned earlier, the lithium carbonate or the lithium hydroxide. But the really important thing here is that towards the end of these ponds, the lithium starts to co-precipitate with the magnesium when it's around 1% concentrated. And that causes a 50 to 70% loss in the lithium because you can't have lithium magnesium combination in your batteries. It literally needs to be 99.9% .9 pure lithium. So is that just lost? Yeah, it's just lost. It's just lost. Okay, so it's lost with the magnesium? <laughs> yeah, it's lost okay. with the magnesium. So this solution that you have where you're basically filtering it out from the beginning, <laughs> rather than just kind of letting Mother Nature run its course by evaporating the water. Tell us about this breakthrough. When you came up with this, what was the breakthrough? Give us that story. I had the same intuition that you mentioned earlier, that these ponds seem ancient and prehistoric. And I said, why can't we apply membrane technology 
to make a technological advancement in lithium production. My first approach was to replace the ponds because the ponds seemed like they took forever and had very low recovery rates and took up a huge environmental footprint. When I approached all of the biggest lithium producers that have these ponds and I said, hey, I have this new technology that can be way more efficient, they kind of said, sorry, no thanks. And I Don't they always? Yeah. Yeah. And I went out of the room like scratching my head and I was wondering why they didn't want to try this new technology. And what I realized is that they've already spent hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, on these massive pond infrastructures. And it would be too much of sunk cost to just forego all of that infrastructure investment and try a new technology. Well, they probably invested in all that pretty recently, right? As lithium no, because these ponds were actually originally for potash production and then lithium was a byproduct. And now they're kind of repurposing the ponds for lithium, but they have a lot of money invested in the ponds is basically what they told me. I went back to the drawing board and we tweaked our approach to say, how can this breakthrough that we've discovered with separation using membranes be complementary to the ponds? Once we figured that out, every single major customer wanted to test our technology because now the economics were a beautiful thing, right? Instead of treating the feed that comes out of the ground and having to treat millions of tons of brine that have 0.1% lithium, we can insert our technology mid-pond cascade right before the lithium-magnesium co-precipitation that I mentioned to you. And now, instead of treating millions of tons of brine, we're treating like 100,000 tons. So you need far less membrane surface area because you're treating 130th the amount of brine that's going into our system. And all of the sodium and potassium has already been precipitated. And we come in at this very critical inflection point where we just separate the lithium before it co-precipitates with the magnesium, which is where they see all their loss. So it's like a huge win-win because it's a lot less capex for the producer and they can still recover this 90% efficiency rate and avoid all the losses. So, so that's what you're doing right now. But if you went into a greenfield scenario, would you want to just be there at the beginning and filter out the 0.1% or yes, would you exactly. try to do Nobody wants to build more ponds, but the biggest producers all have the ponds and want to maximize the pond efficiency. So we're in this interesting few years. There's been very few new lithium producers that are coming out of the market because these are big projects. They take several hundred million to get online and that takes time. And here I am as a technology provider. And I said, what's my quickest go to market? And the quickest go to market is work with the biggest existing producers. What I described earlier is our generation one, which is a complementary system to a brownfield site. Now, once the ponds have reached full maximum capacity output and we recover you know, 90 to 100% of the lithium from those, even the big existing producers won't want to go build more ponds because the economics for our generation two, which is the greenfield approach, are even more attractive than generation one. But at that point, there'll be no risk in the technology. We've already proved that our membranes do what we say they're going to do on a commercial scale. And generation two will be able to completely replace pond infrastructure, build a facility that is a relatively small.
small footprint. Like these big water desalination facilities, everything will be run through a membrane straight out of the ground. Is there another use for this other than lithium? Isn't uranium derived this way? To tell you the truth, I have no idea how uranium is derived. <laughs> With that said, lithium is the lowest hanging fruit. And what I believe is going to be one of the most important natural resources of the next 10 to 20 years. And that's why we're focusing on it. But the core of our technology is actually this new class of materials called metal organic frameworks, which are nanoparticles that have seen these incredible separations between lithium and other ions, but are really infinitely customizable for different types of separations. So we've seen incredible separation statistics between fluorine and chlorine, which is an important separation in Indian water infrastructure and a variety of other types of separations. So what we've done is taken these nanoparticles and embedded them into mechanically robust membranes, which make them tangible in the actual separation. Theoretically, once we have our first products to market in lithium, we can explore the other types of separations that metal organic frameworks can achieve and apply that to several different applications. I had a guest who did metal organic frameworks, mosaic materials. They had a solution for CO2 absorption. Yeah, CO2 absorption is a type of gas absorption and metal organic frameworks have been known to be good absorbers of gas because they have really high internal surface areas. So if you have like a gas tank, right, and you put gas in, gas wants to attract to the surface of the tank and it goes to the inner surface around the inside of the tank. But if you can fill the tank with metal organic frameworks, it increases the internal surface area exponentially. And that's why it's good for gas absorption. What we're talking about is a little bit different in that we're addressing separation in aqueous solutions versus absorption of gases. Right. We talked a little bit about this with all the produced water, the water that's involved with fracking most commonly. You talked about that this could possibly change the availability of lithium. You said you're looking into possibly mining lithium out of produced water, though it's not as much as in the standard mines and everything. How's that going? This is something that several major oil and gas companies have reached out to us about, and we've executed one agreement to put a pilot plan in the field for this. I think that it's a huge opportunity. These big oil and gas companies are inevitably looking to diversify their portfolio into alternative assets, not to mentioned that produced water is one of their biggest expenses when it comes to oil and gas production because so much produced water comes up with oil and gas. So if they can extract value from what would otherwise be an expense, that's a win-win for them. And as it compares to traditional lithium producers, these big oil and gas companies are like 10 times the size in terms of market cap. So they have big budgets to do this kind of thing. And I think it's really interesting and it's exciting for us that they want to explore that avenue. And look, I'll tell the story in the monologue, but before I went to the utility side, I was working with products for saltwater disposal wells, which are basically the reservoirs where all that produced water goes when you don't want to recycle it. So you have reservoirs like that, you could almost tap minerals out. And I think there was a lot of talk at different points about, you know, mining precious metals out of produced water, mining gold that might be a part per billion, but what if you get it, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's certainly interesting. And I think that as these oil and gas companies start to explore this with produced water, they already work with companies like you mentioned, whose sole job it is to re-inject the produced water back into the earth. And that's another potential customer that we're thinking about.
Sure. Teague, want to ask you your thoughts about the lithium industry. How sustainable would you say lithium is? I mean, this idea that you could now mine lithium out of water sources, there's almost an unlimited supply of this water that's below the water table, this kind of prehistoric water, if you want to call it. But the batteries in electric vehicles don't last forever. And here we are talking about electrifying the world's fleet of vehicles. What do you think about that? Is there enough lithium to go around and the batteries only last a couple of years. How do you see that ecosystem playing out? I think it's fascinating. <laughs> First of all, it's what I think about all day, every day. But I think that one, yes, there's certainly enough lithium to power not only the entire electromobility infrastructure of the world, but also stationary storage, such as home batteries or utility scale grid batteries. But like you said, batteries have a certain life cycle and that's where battery recycling becomes important. So just to give you an idea, I've owned my Tesla since 2013. And when I bought it, it had about 265 miles of range. Now I'm down to about 215 miles per range. In the battery world, degradation from 100% capacity to 80% capacity is considered the life of the battery. And that's when you would want to either recycle it or repurpose it. So I think that recycling is going to be a huge, huge industry for batteries in the future. With that said, battery technology is at the very beginning of its life. And what I mean by that is that we are just really starting to do research and development into better batteries and longer lasting batteries. I think I've driven like 80,000 miles on my car since 2013, and I could now consider it degraded. But Elon Musk is talking about the million mile battery, right? So in that scenario, the battery might last for 20 years before you need to recycle it or more. So I think as more smart people and more smart money put their focus and effort behind battery research, we'll have a lot better batteries and lithium and the natural resources that go into that will go a longer ways. Yeah. And I think you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I've heard some folks say use lithium for cars, use something else for grid storage. Do you think there's some merit to that or do you think it should be all of the above for lithium ion batteries? Lithium is imperative for cars because of its natural properties. If you look at the periodic table, lithium is the third element. It's the lightest metal on the periodic table. So when you're looking at an equation of mobility where weight is a factor, you need a really light material because if the battery in a car weighed 10,000 pounds, you'd need a lot more energy to move it, right? Lithium is essential for electric mobility in cars. Now, when you move over to stationary storage, weight is not an issue, right? And that's why why there's sentiment out there that you don't need lithium for stationary storage. However, if people are putting tens or hundreds of billions into lithium battery development and R&D, and then there's people like me who are developing lithium production technology, which are ultimately driving down the cost of lithium, I think there's a scenario where lithium is also utilized in stationary storage. Very good. Good take there. <laughs> you talk about a master plan on your website. Mm. Do you want to continue to sell these use operators or do you want to bring operators
operations more in-house, I guess, talking more about the Greenfield plan. Look, one of the things I talk about on this podcast is this idea of recurring revenue. Are you just selling things to people? Or are you also making revenue after you've sold it? I know you probably get a lot of investors asking the same question. With the master plan, you know, I obviously took a page out of Alon's book with that. But I think that it's really important to have a long-term vision for where you see the company going. Right now, we are hanging our hat on being a technology provider. So we've developed this really breakthrough technology, but we don't want to be the manufacturers for that because that's a whole nother process. There are experts out there that manufacture millions of square meters of membrane and have multi-million dollar production lines that already produce that stuff. I don't want to have to go buy a $10 million production line. That's not what I'm in the business of right now. Our business model is to partner with the manufacturing side and then together sell the hard goods, the systems to the customer, which is the lithium producer, and then get an annual recurring revenue as a technology fee from the producer. So if you think about fracking, for instance, or midstream oil and gas, if somebody owns IP around fracking, they could go partner with a big engineering or manufacturing firm to actually make it and then sell it to Exxon, BP, Saudi Aramco, everybody, and then take $5 a barrel for every barrel of oil and gas produced using fracking. That's essentially what we've created with Lightus. They're taking that deal? Yeah. I mean, that's the only deal we're selling. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. <laughs> that's the business model that we're starting out with. Now, I fully see that evolving into more vertical integration. I mean, if you look at Tesla, they started out where they were buying shell cars from Lotus and assembling battery packs and retrofitting them into Lotuses. You know, It was just about putting the parts together. As they expanded, they created their own production lines, but they still partnered with Panasonic to make the battery cells. Now they're looking to develop their own battery technology. They're looking to source their lithium. There's a lot of options on the table. Right now, we don't want to be resource owners or manufacturers, but down the line, we could produce just the membrane element of this and source the ancillary parts like the casing, the piping, the tubing that goes into the broader system. We've been offered the potential of joint ventures on actual lithium resources where we provide the technology and we have an equity share in an actual resource. If we end up producing our own lithium using our technology, that could feed into some of the battery work that we're doing. Right now, we're working on solid state batteries and we're particularly working on a solid state electrolyte or separator, which is the piece in the battery that separates the anode and the cathode. And if we produce our own lithium, we could final process that into lithium metal, produce our own separator, and then source the cathode and get into battery production. You know, these are all very long-term visions, but it's certainly something that I think about as I try to progress the company forward. Yeah, and here I was thinking, you sell the replacement membranes, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's really ambitious and, and good for you to try to get a cut from the production. That's what we did with oil and gas was we just charged per barrel of water treated, we took 30 cents or something. Exactly. You know? It was lucrative. That type of business model isn't quite accepted in the mining industry, but it's certainly accepted in oil and gas. And I'm going to bring that over and apply it to the lithium <laughs> industry. Sounds good. Okay, Teague, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Effective. Crude oil. Dirty. Nuclear. Futuristic. Coal. And coal with carbon capture. Ancient. Wind. Sustainable. Solar. 
also sustainable and abundant. Biofuels. Interesting. Hydroelectric. Impractical. Geothermal. Unique. Energy storage, your family. Essential. Electric vehicles. Awesome to drive. Energy efficiency. Important for economics. And then finally, fusion power. Exciting and futuristic. All right. Yeah. T. Gigan, Energy X, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Really appreciate it. That was T. Gigan, founder and CEO of Energy X, a lithium technology company based in Puerto Rico. I want to thank T. for his time, as well as James Ellsmore at Energy X for reaching out and setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram and Parlor at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 106. Be sure to join us next week when we drill down on what makes oil and gas wells perform. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.